I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, I fill in for Andrew as Scott and Bill preview all things surrounding the G20 meetings in Osaka, Japan next week. I'd like to make a deal, but we'll see what happens. But I can tell you as much as I'd like to, China wishes they had that deal to do over again. President Trump is slated to meet with Xi Jinping on the sidelines. What will come out of those talks? Plus, some optimism on the USMCA timeline and a preview of the first Democratic debates. I'm Jack Caporal. You'll hear all about that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. So there's a lot of ground to cover on this week's episode. Um, The main event coming up uh, at the end of the week, June 28th and 29th, is the G20 Leaders Summit in Osaka, Japan. And there, uh, President Trump Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping are going to sit down and try and Restart trade talks, or call a trade truce, or or what? What are the expectations that we have uh, for this meeting? Well, first, um, in a way, technically, it's a sideshow because mm-hmm. there is a G20. There are eighteen other countries. Uh, they are having a meeting. Uh, the Japanese hosts have put uh, uh, digital trade on the agenda. They put WTO reform on the agenda, which is interesting because there, I think, the pre- our president will be under some pressure. Um, CSIS had a press briefing last Friday with Matt Goodman, uh, Mike Green, and Heather Connolly about expectations at the G20. So for all of you out there listening, you know, go to the website and see if you can find it if you care about the, the larger issues. For us, the sideshow is what's important, and that is the Trump-Xi meeting, primarily. There's also going to be a Trump-Abe meeting. Sure. Uh, no doubt. And, uh, and he's, he's visiting uh, uh, South Korea on his way. So there, there's, it's, a, it's a fairly involved week of uh, travel for the president. But uh, to my mind, the fact that there will be a Trump-Xi meeting uh, means that there'll be some sort of progress announced, whether it's just restarted the talks or perhaps an agreement that things there was a favorable enough discussion that the president's decided to to not put tariffs on the list four group of products. The the next list that we talked about last week with mm-hmm. Steve Lamar and others uh, have mentioned uh, list four. Uh, so I think something will happen uh, of that of that nature uh, because the leaders are getting together and they'll want to look uh, in some ways like they're making progress. Sure, but so there's kind of a, a broader context to this, right? So if you look back to the last time Trump and she met. In Buenos Aires at the last G20, uh, they essentially called a trade truce. And then months later, the U.S. ratcheted up tariffs after negotiations broke down. I mean, why should we expect this time to be any different? It's it's like history is repeating yeah. itself here a well, little bit. Well, it is. I predicted a rerun. Um, mm-hmm. my, I have clients who always want a percentage. You know, They always sure. want the, the odds. And so I'm forced to do that, even though I think it's silly. Uh, but I would say 70% chance sort of temporary happy ending. They either repeat Buenos Aires, handshake, smiles, we're going back to the table, tariffs are postponed, the new ones. Right. Alternatively, I wouldn't rule out the possibility that they could announce some cosmic agreement in principle, fine print to be filled in later. 
which will be functionally the same thing because they won't agree on any of the details, uh, but they'll agree that they agreed, uh, and then they'll dump it on on Lighthizer and Liu He to uh, do what they would have done otherwise. That puts a more positive spin on it, but it's the same thing. 30% chance it's like uh, Kim Jong-un in Hanoi. Uh, sure. The president walks out, tariffs next week or the week after, and uh, it doesn't start all over again. But if it's the 70% chance, I think you're exactly right. We have a rerun. Uh, at some point, and we've talked about this before here, the president is going to have to confront the fact that he can't get an agreement that gives him everything he wants. So he has to decide if he wants a weaker agreement and suffer that criticism, or if he wants to continue the war and escalate the war and suffer that criticism. Sure. Summits are all about show business. And there's no doubt this bilateral uh, between the two leaders will be has to has to be considered in that manner. And so I think the president, uh, our president and President Xi both would like a uh, an outcome that satisfies their interests in stability. Uh, and so I think that's why that uh, I agree with Bill's 70, 30, uh, the, maybe a little higher with the, the odds of something that looks like an agreement and quacks like an agreement uh, is is probably the likely outcome. Sure. Yeah. The one uh, problem, I think, is that, or the one danger I see is that it seems to me that both presidents seem to believe right now that the other is in the weaker position, uh, that uh, Trump clearly feels that the Chinese are being hurt more than we are, uh, and that if he just pushes harder, they'll fold. Um, he always says this, um, and then he doesn't always act on it. But uh, he, I think, feels that, uh, you know, the president has a, President Trump has an election. He doesn't. Uh, there are political forces here that he doesn't have to deal with there. Um, this is not usually a good sign for getting into an agreement if each guy thinks he's stronger than the other one. Right. But a confrontation now has downside risks for President Trump in, uh, in you know, consumers actually finally figuring out that they pay the tariffs and, uh, and uh, some, some uh, pressure on, uh, on markets or increased volatility. Uh, likewise, President Xi, I think it's in his interest to keep this stringing out at its current level uh, just in case he gets a better counterparty in 2021. So, mm. so I think yes. bo both of them have an incentive to for stability here instead of confrontation. Yeah. The other piece of this puzzle is in the background, there's the this growing tech cold war between the US and China, right? It seems like every week now is putting more export controls on US companies, you know, high tech companies preventing the uh, export of, of, you know, computer chips, for example, to certain Chinese companies. And it kind of raises two questions, right? You know, what would the overall value of trade agreement be if if there's just this section of trade that's essentially sealed off between the two countries. And then second, can the two sides separate the two issues? I mean, what is a trade negotiation without uh, negotiating over high value, high value products? Well, I have to say in a moment of non-humility, I predicted this. Uh, I predicted this a year ago, year and a half ago. It was only a matter of time before the president discovered export controls and technology transfer uh, controls as a way of squeezing the Chinese. And they're now doing that and, and searching for every possible alternative. The thing that makes it a little bit difficult um, is they've got a lot of help from the Chinese. There really are security issues. Uh, there are sanctions violations issues. 
the uh, rumor today about some Chinese banks being sanctioned for breaking, uh, violating North Korea sanctions. Uh, ZTE and Huawei got in trouble because of Iran sanctions. Uh, you know, we're not talking about innocent parties here. Um, the fact that there is a significant security overlay, the fact that it all relates to the 5G, uh, I think, is has done a couple things. One, it's consolidated public opinion here. Sure. I think yes. people here are much less sympathetic to the Chinese than they used to be. And they may or may not see a trade threat, uh, but I think a lot of them see a security threat. And so they're they're sympathetic to this. Uh, and they do blur together. I mean, maybe Scott has a thought about whether it's going to be possible to separate trade and security in the end. But right now, we're going in the opposite direction. Well, in the, in the column of great minds think alike, I would note that at the end of February, former Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson spoke at CSIS. And in his, uh, his address, he specifically identified what he called the tech cold war as going uh, not only the flashpoint in the relationship between US and China but the 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 tension which would spill out into into other areas so i think the both bill and the secretary were are, are right about that and look i th i think that this is the one area you know, i look around this town for area for signs of bipartisanship and there are very few except for two areas regulating big tech and dealing with china and so uh, that has current bipartisan credence at this point. And I think the American people not only recognize that China is an unfair trader, which clearly comes out in all the polling, so that there is reluctance of the American people to, to push back on the president's trade actions with China, but also the security threat, I think, is real. And, and Chinese behavior here is, is really making the case. You don't have to have to like President Trump or listen to what he says. You just read the paper and see what's happening on the, uh, from, from China, and you realize we got to do something about this. So do you think there is a chance that, that Trump and Xi get together, sit at the table, you know, they're in Japan, and the president, President Trump, makes an offer, and she says, well, you know the offer is pretty good, but we're gonna, if we accept this deal, what's stopping you from slapping export restrictions and and uh, and basically hamstringing our high tech sector outside of the confines of the deal, and and things just kind of fall apart. The Chinese have always uh, tried to insist on commitments from us, not only not to do that, but to liberalize our controls on tech transfer. Yes. I mean they've been conveying that message for 25 years. When I was in the government and met with them. It was in the Clinton administration. It was the same thing. Then they linked it to the deficit. You want the deficit to go down, sell us more high tech. Uh, the message hasn't changed, and no administration ha has bought that. Clinton didn't buy it. Bush didn't buy it. Obama didn't buy it. And uh, Trump is certainly not going to buy it. Um, if they make it a condition of the deal, then it seems to me it's going to be very hard to get a deal. Yes, that could make things worse. Mm -hmm. I, I'm personally skeptical that that happens in a leaders' meeting, but it's it's likely to play out after the Osaka meeting. It would demand a grasp of detail that we're not entirely yes, confident our president has. That's exactly why I'm suspicious of it. But. No, that's uh, fair enough. You were the, more tactful than I was, though. <laughs> <laughs> so there's also, like Bill, as you mentioned, there's the rest of the G20 um, that's happening, right? That that really is the main event, and so on the agenda. As uh, WTO reform, uh, Japanese Prime Minister Abe has this whole push for uh, discussion on digital economy governance um, that he calls data free flow with trust. And then an issue that uh, seemingly always pops up at these meetings uh, with the Trump administration is whether or not the final joint statement, um, what kind of language on trade 
uh, will be in the joint statement, whether there's language on fighting protectionism or embracing free and open trade. I mean, I mean, is there a risk that these issues are just overshadowed by kind of everything else that's happening, not just US-China, but I mean, there are a lot of global issues going on. Is there a risk that you know, there's just no common ground on issues like WTO reform and digital governance? Well, sure, because there isn't. I mean, look, sorry for being the skeptic of the gang, but the G20 was formed at a period of crisis during the global financial crisis. 2008, roughly speaking, was the first meeting. And for a while, uh, provided some useful cooperation, especially among G20 finance ministers, because we had a global crisis. The 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 world world finance is a matrix, and the coordination was required, and it seemed to help. And really, since that time, the G20 has completely. Uh, and 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 convincingly demonstrated its inability to do much of anything, uh, and I think there just are the same diverse opinions. I mean, how do you have a meeting on advancing the digital economy when you have the United States, China, and India in the same room? Well, they, you know, they're all G20 members, uh, and there's no there's no process or agreement or or treaty that says we have to accomplish something and so different points of view get stated and nothing gets resolved that's that's been the story of the G20 for about a dozen years look hats off to the prime minister of japan for hosting the meeting it's a it's a pain it's difficult it's work and uh, I appreciate a, an, an ambitious agenda but I think it's going the way of lots of other ambitious agendas What's sad about it is it's sort of another blow for multilateralism. Right. Plug my column this week, which discusses this in, uh, in a little bit of detail. I think one of the things that we need to be focusing on, and the G20 has tended to focus on, although less so with Trump, has been uh, global problems and global commons problems. So climate change, uh, the problem of overfishing is a, has been a, a WTO multilateral problem, uh, epidemics, the new one, plastic pollution in the oceans. I mean, these are all multi-nation problems. They are caused by multiple nations, and the effects affect a whole bunch of other nations, many of whom have nothing to do with the pro causing the problem. They're the victims because the plastic washes up on their shores, or the dirty air blows over their, you know, over their atmosphere. And we seem to be moving into an era, well, back into an era where it's sort of might makes right, and you know, everyone for himself. Uh, and, you know, if you're big and strong, that you, you, you do better, although I think it's a, a closer question now than it used to be, at least for the United States. But what gets lost in, in that whole transition are these global problems. No one nation can fix climate change. Our nation, our, our government seems not even to be interested in it. But uh, even if we are, China being a good example, having because it's a you know it's a political issue there because they've had so many pollution problems they can't solve the problem by themselves they can you know and what's what we're losing uh, by the failure of not just the G20 but all the multilateral organizations is our ability to cope with all that so i End mean of rant sorry scott you said the, the G20 is born out of a time of crisis and it seems like you know bills pointed to five or six different crises the WTO is definitely at a hinge moment. It's at a pivotal moment, and it's on the agenda. You could argue that there is a crisis in 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 terms of how digital governance is being shaped. Right, it's kind of an every every nation for themselves exporting models, um, like EU GDPR, and then you have China at the other end of the spectrum. And so, I, I just want to push you a little further. I mean, don't 
there there are crises. And are you just saying that the countries aren't up to the task? Well, the forum has not demonstrated capability. So what I would do if I were if I were the G- G20 czar, I'd pick a problem and actually fix it. So for me, fish subsidies, fishery subsidies is the is the that's the low hanging fruit among the ones Bill listed because you can you can debate about Earth's temperature in thirty years and have lots of pleasant conversations or unpleasant conversations about it. But there's really not any debate that we now have the technology to basically remove every fish from the ocean. Okay. And that that would be a bad thing for people. Okay. Not to mention the fish. Not to mention the fish. Yeah. The fish wind up, they're going to wind up as dinner one way or another if we have our way. But, but we can literally fish out the oceans. That's how, that's what maritime technology has evolved to. And that it's in all our interests to not do that. So that one's a very practical problem. And so I, for me, if I wanted to demonstrate the organization's value, I would find a problem that is solvable or at least addressable uh, in cooperation with, say, the WTO. Uh, WTO fishery subsidies have been on the agenda since, I'm pretty sure, Seattle. 1999 was the first time they were on. So this is a this is not a new problem. It's not one that lacks definition, uh, and it is one that, as technology has evolved in in fish, fish, fishery technology, uh, it is clearly a threat to not just fish but uh, but human beings, given the proportion of the diet. So go do something and make it actually make it happen, make it stick, sure. and 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 build the reputation of the group and move on to other problems. Then sure, you know this this brings back uncomfortable memories because uh, when the EU-US relationship was running into headwinds in the Bush administration and some CEOs came into the president and talked about revitalizing the relationship, that led to a discussion between the commission and and the White House over uh, what do we do? And the answer was, let's pick one thing and let's see if we can make that one thing work and then we build on that. Well, the one thing they picked was chickens. And oh it is my now, goodness! It, I had no idea. <laughs> it is now fifteen years. That was the EU's idea. It wasn't our idea. <laughs> and now, fifteen years later, we still have a chicken problem. So I'm not optimistic. The other reason uh, I'm I'm frustrated is uh, on on fishery subsidies. To the WTO's great credit, they have done exactly what you suggested. They've flagged it, identified it, yes. and targeted it as the big accomplishment for their next ministerial, which will be about a year from now in, in Kazakhstan. Yes. Not exactly an ocean state, but that's all right. That'd be all right. Uh, but, uh, you know, they are now, and they are now getting down to more serious negotiations. And what has happened most recently is the Indians have come in, to the surprise of no one, and suggested we need to have a system here that exempts developing countries. Well, what an opportunity for the the 19 other leaders of the G20 to browbeat um, the Indians at uh, this week's meeting. Yeah, we'll right. see. <laughs> I, ho- I hope I hope that's what happens, and I I hope you're right. But um, I, I'll be surprised. Like I said, it's we're we're looking for a measure of effectiveness. It's hard to find. So pessimistic about the G20. Maybe a little pessimistic about fisheries subsidies, despite you know that being a UN Sustainable Development Goal, and they've been given you know direction by world leaders to come to an agreement by the end of the year. Um, and now you have a developing country saying that. All developing countries deserve exemptions, despite the fact that I think, you know, over five, that would include China, which is the largest uh, economy that by fish capture, you know, ton of other developing countries in the top 20 in terms of uh, fish capture. So this is there's a huge frustration for me about the logic of this argument, because what the developing countries will say when they say it about 
climate change and pollution is you rich countries are the problem. You've been polluting. You've been building factories. You've been using coal for 100 years. It's all your fault. Uh, and then they basically say, now it's our turn. Right. Which yep. is tantamount to saying, all right, you guys have been stupid for 100 years, so now it's our turn to be stupid. Uh, and the loser is yes. the global commons. Yeah, so right. perhaps restate the argument, and rather than exclude developing countries, uh, basically have it only apply to modern technology. So if, if you've got a wooden boat and the three people on it and no, mechaniz no mechanization, fish all you want. Sure. Okay? <laughs> and, uh, but, but if you're using modern technology that is capable of really destroying fish stocks, then you've got to be part of the, part of the disciplines. Sure. So. Which would capture the Chinese right. for sure. Yes. We've gone down a little bit of a rabbit hole. I've noticed that Bill is also wearing a fish tie, a salmon fish tie today. Which is Indeed. somewhat coincidental. I'm wearing this because Andrew told me that it looks good on TV. And I did TV this morning. So oh. I'm following his advice implicitly. What channel were you on? Well, I was almost on MSNBC. And then they realized I was in the wrong studio because I was supposed <laughs> to be on CNBC, um, which is where I ended up talking about what we were talking about, China and Xi and Trump. Yeah, it's the news. Let's shell fisheries for a minute. That's like a whole other podcast in and of itself. It's very complicated. And turn maybe to USMCA, which is still the issue du jour in terms of uh, what's on the US uh, trade agenda domestically. And US Trade Representative uh, Lighthizer was on the Hill last week making the case for USMCA. Uh, he told lawmakers that he would do whatever it takes uh, to get them on board, specifically Democrats, when it comes to their concerns with enforcement. But you have uh, the top Democrat on the Ways and Means Trade Subcommittee, the Ways and Means Committee, which uh, has jurisdiction over trade issues in the House, saying there's not a chance that lawmakers will take up the agreement uh, before the August recess. Some folks have seen the August recess as kind of an informal deadline to consider the agreement before it gets sucked into the vortex of the 2020 election cycle. Um, so. Is he basically foreclosing, uh, Mr. Blumenauer, is he basically foreclosing the chance that we're going to see a vote on USMCA before the election? Well, believe it or not, I'm not that pessimistic anymore. Okay. Actually, ah, it's you've a, been listening to me. Uh, or I've been paying attention <laughs> to events, maybe, uh, as well as listening to you, uh, which I always do. Uh, but look, first, Mexico ratified it this week. So yep. the Mexican Congress approved USMCA. So it's one out of three. Um, the C Canadians are prepared to move forward, even if uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has to recall the parliament. And they're just waiting for us. And they're yes. basically waiting for us to move. So that's good. But the Canadians still do have a tight schedule, right? Yeah, they yes, have they an do. election in October. And the latest they can recall the parliament is before their election period begins, which is late September. They have to dissolve the parliament in September. Right. So it really yeah, so, is in the next couple of months. So right. they've got the, the window is not forever, but uh, it is not uh, August 1. So, and in terms of the August recess, look, having lobbied on enough issues, to, uh, floor managers uh, for either party want to make tough issues right before a big break. So you, you basically back the vote up, don't let members leave town, okay, make them vote, all right? And so that, that's, that's the popularity of doing it before a big recess. And then lots of things happen while you're out on recess, and by the time the fall rolls around, everybody's forgotten and moved on to the next outrage. So uh, now look, this still remains complicated in the Democratic caucus in the House. I note that, uh, that there are 134 members of Mrs. Pelosi's caucus, which is so over half, who have never cast a recorded vote on a trade agreement. 
So this is new for a lot of Democrats. So this is going to take some time to work. And I'm actually most encouraged by the fact that Chairman Neal of the Ways and Means Committee has formed a working group to deal with the very specific issues that Democrats have raised and to work directly with Ambassador Lighthizer to fix that. That says to me that's a plan to get to a yes between the administration and House Democrats. Once that happens, I think you're, you're, you're able to make the rest of the things move pretty well. Sure. Let me just push back on on one point you made, which is, you know, they could do it after the August recess, but when they get back, they have to do the budget, and then they have to do the debt ceiling right before Christmas time, essentially. Yep. And those are some major fights, and those are some major, you know, political issues as well. Well, this is why they pay big salaries to members of Congress and they have beautiful views of the National Mall from their offices. It's it's going to be hard work, okay? And they haven't done a lot of legislating this year so far. Uh, devoted a lot to oversight and those kinds of things. Uh, appropriations are with us always. Uh, so um, my view is once once the, the Speaker and the Chairman of the Ways and Means Committee feel they have a grasp of a, a, whatever the number of votes, both I votes and people who aren't going to to sort of break up the party over it, uh, that when they get that comfortable with that, they're going to be ready to move. And it's going to be what's, what's happened in the past is trade agreements actually move very fast once exactly. you reach that threshold. Right. So it's actually not a lot of floor time. It's not a lot of effort. You don't have to you don't have a problem with, with a 60 vote threshold of the Senate. There's a lots of lots of things that that allow this to move faster rather than slower once you decide you're ready to move. Exactly. I think the last one moved in 11 days after it was sent up, as I I seem to recall. And Scott is exactly right. You can't amend it. You can't put a hold on it. You can't filibuster it. You know, there are time limits. So you find about other things. There's not that much to do. So the delay is front loaded, which is what's going on right now. You have to work everything out because once the bill comes up, it cannot be changed. And I still think that uh, they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do right now. They're addressing these issues. They've set up a structure for addressing these issues. Once it's they've reached an agreement, mm-hmm. I think then the bill comes up and it moves along fairly quickly. Yeah, and the, for for me, the politic the best politics of this is to deal with it, put it in the rearview mirror, and move on to the next issue. Uh, because come time for 2020 elections, no one will remember that it got done. There'll be there'll be people who are concerned if it didn't get done, uh, mostly traders, you know, who have have to have to had dealt with uncertainty. But I don't think there's much retribution being dealt out um, a year no, from now. And no one will care whether it got done in July or it got done in October. Exactly. We had Mr. Blumenauer here like six weeks ago or something like that, and the same issue came up, and he was. Uh, more evasive on the August question, but but clearly skeptical about August, but did say, you know, that if you do it in the fall, it was doable in the fall. He said if it went into 2020, then yeah, it would be toast. A problem. Yeah. And I think the the election argument, it, it probably, you know, it, that, that kicks in around the New Hampshire primary. But I think in the fall, it's still time to do this. I might be a little bit more pessimistic just because the number of the number of fights that they're going to have in the fall, I think, you oh, know, come on, we're fighting about another... everything. Okay. Yeah, the, the budgets, the budgets <laughs> a, yes. a big fight and then throwing this in the mix. But there the difference is there's a whole bunch of games you can play with those. Yeah. And there's amendments and you can hold them up and there's all kinds of brinksmanship. 
with the with this bill, once it comes up, there's a timetable. You know, the committee gets so many days, the floor gets so many days, the Senate gets so many days. You can't change anything. That's why pro-traders moved heaven and earth to get TPA in 2015. Right. You know, that's, yeah. that's why it's so important. And we might as well use it to pay off. Okay. But there's still work that needs to be done to get yes. the bill oh, on yes. the floor, right? Oh, yes. And, and so Lighthizer last week says he's willing to do basically whatever it takes. He tells congressional Democrats he's willing to do whatever it takes to get them on board with the agreement. But at the same time, the administration has said they're unwilling to reopen the agreement and Democrats are saying we need changes to the text. So, you know, we'll find where's out. the middle ground? There? Well, look, this is one of Bill's landmines. One of Bill's landmines is the overreach of, of Democrats. It's still possible. I think this I think this working group or co uh, committee makes it less likely and not more likely. Um, and I also think that, you know, look, this is something that that once they've decided it's going to happen, they'll try to try to find a way to do it. Now, politics are still complicated. And the fact that a lot of people who are members of Congress now have not voted on a trade agreement will make this very difficult, challenging uh, for the people on, on say, the, 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 the majority whip and the minority whip's teams to pin down members and make sure you have the votes to pass. Every administration says they won't reopen. And every administration reopens. Uh, you know, they they say they won't until the last possible minute, and then if that's the choice, if they have to, they do. They, they do, uh, and they try to contain it and limit it. I mean, people don't don't all, don't see this, but in a way, the whole debate has been substantially limited already. You know, mm -hmm. there are four subcommittees; they're doing four issues. Everything else has been pushed aside. Yeah. You know, right. where is ISDS? Where are regional vegetables? You know, where are where is dairy? They've you know They've not all, no it, longer for discussion. Right, it's no focused in labor, environment, enforcement, and drugs. Yep. And I mean that's a lot. I mean those are not simple issues, but it's only four where it could have been fifteen. And so, in a way, you know, without ever anybody standing up, well, we've done, you know, we've thrown all these things under the bus. Nobody ever stands up and says that. But de facto, that's what's happened. Yes. They're focusing on four things. And when they're satisfied on those four things, then we move forward. Right. No stern letters being written on anything else right at the moment. Right. No, that's true. You know, and there will be six or seven House members who stand up and say, the Florida delegation will stand up and say, you know, they, they, they've screwed my tomato people and I'm voting no. That's so 20, be it. 29 so be members. It, it just know. takes 218 to pass. All right. That's all, all you need. So we're thinking this gets done before 2020. And then we're in election season. We got a taste of that this week with the first Democratic debates. It's a packed stage. There are about a million uh, Democratic candidates. <laughs> well, there are 24 lot. as oh. of this week. Oh, okay. Joe Sestak joined the I pack. thought he was number 25. I guess I've he lost He was 24. Count. Okay. I think it was 20, 23, 20 in the debate. Yes. 10 and 10. Over two nights. Yes. Yes. And they have, I mean, you would expect trade to come up um, at the debates. And the candidates, in my opinion, have a range of views on trade. So you have some more free trade type folks like uh, Joe Biden um, and maybe Pete Buttigieg and some of the senators. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have folks like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders who are almost aligned with the president on many issues. So, you know, is there going to be some infighting within the Democratic Party? Does the party need to do some soul searching to figure out where they stand on trade? Uh, before they, you know, get to the big kahuna and facing the president? You know, it's always a debate during the nomination process. There was a big debate in uh, amongst the Democrats in um, 
in the 16 nomination, probably between Bernie and Hillary on this. I mean, in the end, they didn't end up that far apart, at least on paper, but uh, it was a big issue in the debate. Uh, It was a big issue when Obama was running in 08, but then it faded in the general. It tends to be a nomination issue for for Democrats and then fade because it's not really something that they like to talk about. Um, this election will be different because it's a signature issue for Trump. So he won't let it fade. And so the Democrats have to deal with it whether they want to or not. There is some common ground. Um, uh, plug here. You know, uh, we are putting out today an issue brief on the Democrats and trade, or actually the all the, including the, the one Republican, the non-Trump candidate on trade. Uh, a lot of qu- quotes by what they say and, and some uh, analysis that, you know, it doesn't land anywhere. It just helps you understand what they think. So it's a good guide going into the debate. Um, there is common ground. One is uh, they all think Trump is going about it the wrong way. You know, implementation is terrible. Uh, most of them uh, don't like the tariffs uh, because they read the polls like everybody else and understand the polls are, are uh, negative on, on tariffs. And the, the positive thing they all say is he's not building coalitions and that trade is inherently an issue where you need to line up as many friends as you can and get them, particularly on China, and get them all saying the same thing at the same time and working together. Uh, and we're not doing that. And uh, I think that's, uh, first of all, it's a compelling criticism, uh, a good one, and it's one they'll make. Beyond that, there's a breakdown exactly what you said. Uh, Biden, of course, has had eight years with Obama and a long record in the Senate where he voted for a lot of these agreements. Uh, and, you know, I, I think he's going to stand on, on, his, on his record. Uh, some of the governors, Hickenlooper is a good example, has come up with a, a trade plan of his own, which is pro-trade. Uh, you've got uh, Sanders and actually Warren, who, you know, I've complained that Trump is, uh, uh, you know, uh, stuck in the 50s. Uh, they're really trapped in the 30s. You know, it's it's a class it's class warfare yes, for them. Yeah. And trade is just one more element of how big companies cheat the workers. Uh, I mean, they, uh, Warren has spelled this out, I think, more coherently uh, than Sanders has. But it's the same point, which is trade is part of a larger inequality in our society in which the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And trade agreements are manifestations of ways in which large companies and powerful executives uh, arrange things to their advantage and to the disadvantage of the worker. We'll see how far that gets. I mean, that was sort of Trump's uh, policy as well. Sure. And I, I actually, as, as a bold prediction, I don't think it's the conversation gets very far this week in these debates for, for several reasons. They have a minute each. I mean, <laughs> that, that's, that's the most important one is there are 20 people on the stage or uh, 10 and 10, however they structure it. And uh, you'll recall a little less than four years ago when there were 17 Republicans uh, on the stage in their primary process, issues weren't the definitive factor uh, in in the early stages. Uh, Second, also policy positions, with the exception of Senator Warren, are not as thoroughly developed at this point. So the contrasts really haven't been drawn below the sort of the top line principles. Uh, So I think we'll just see how this plays out. I don't think we'll learn much this weekend. uh, But now that the process is kicking off, uh, it's great we'll have always have something to talk about. Yes, that's true. Stay tuned. We will do uh, our brief that's coming out today. will be updated as the situation is refined. As people disappear from the list, it will get a little bit easier. Uh, and there will be more pressure on them to come out with fully fleshed 
programs, I think, particularly on trade, because, uh, you know, Scott's right. It's all going to be sloganeering. And how do I stand out and make myself? Who's the fairest of them all? Who's the fairest of them all? Well, or who's the most outrageous of them all? That was how uh, Trump prevailed. That worked. Yeah. But Trump will, you know, this and immigration are signature issues for him. Yes. So it's not going to go away, and the Democrats are going to have to confront it. There will have to be a contrast. Yes, I think me too. I've, I've, I've been saying this for ever since he won. The Democrats are not going to be able to out-protectionist Trump. No. You know, he no, his, owns that particular His credentials are now very thing. strong. Yes. Okay? And if you want four more years of that, he's your guy. Yes. They could argue that they're better for the worker which is a yes, distinction with the difference. Uh, yes, but they will have to have to provide a contrast. Yes. And explain why. Yes. So it's going to be interesting. Yes, for sure. Well, something to discuss next week. Indeed. To our listeners, if you have a question for the trade guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, trade guys. Thanks, Andrew. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.